American Notes, Chapter Fifteen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. American Notes by Charles Dickens, Chapter Fifteen. In Canada, Toronto, Kingston, Montreal, Quebec, St. John's. In the United States again, Lebanon, the Shaker Village, West Point. I wish to abstain from instituting any comparison, or drawing any parallel whatever, between the social features of the United States and those of the British possessions in Canada. For this reason, I shall confine myself to a very brief account of our journeyings in the latter territory. But before I leave Niagara, I must advert to one disgusting circumstance which can hardly have escaped the observation of any decent traveller who has visited the falls. On Table Rock there is a cottage belonging to a guide, where little relics of the place are sold, and where visitors register their names in a book kept for the purpose. On the wall of the room, in which a great many of these volumes are preserved, the following request is posted. Visitors will please not copy or extract the remarks and poetical effusions from the registers and albums kept here but for this intimation i should have let them lie upon the tables on which they were strewn with careful negligence like books in a drawing-room being quite satisfied with the stupendous silliness of certain stanzas with an anticlimax at the end of each which were framed and hung up on the wall curious however after reading this announcement to see what kind of morsels were so carefully preserved i turned a few leaves and found them scrawled all over with the vilest and filthiest ribaldry that ever human hogs delighted in it is humiliating enough to know that there are among men brutes so obscene and worthless that they can delight in laying these miserable profanations upon the very steps of nature's greatest altar but that these should be hoarded up for the delight of their fellow-swine, and kept in a public place where any eyes may see them, is a disgrace to the English language in which they are written, though I hope few of these entries have been made by Englishmen, and a reproach to the English side on which they are preserved. The quarters of our soldiers at Niagara are finely and airily situated. Some of them are large detached houses, on the plain above the falls, which were originally designed for hotels, and in the evening-time, when the women and children are leaning over the balconies, watching the men as they played at ball and other games upon the grass before the door, they often presented a little picture of cheerfulness and animation which made it quite a pleasure to pass that way. At any garrisoned point where the line of demarcation between one country and another is so very narrow as at Niagara, desertion from the ranks can scarcely fail to be of frequent occurrence and it may be reasonably supposed that when the soldiers entertain the wildest and maddest hopes of the fortune and independence that await them on the other side the impulse to play traitor which such a place suggests to dishonest minds is not weakened but it very rarely happens that the men who do desert are happy or contented afterwards and many instances have been known in which they have confessed their grievous disappointment and their earnest desire to return to their old service if they could but be assured of pardon or lenient treatment many of their comrades notwithstanding do the like from time to time and instances of loss of life in the effort to cross the river with that object are far from being uncommon several men were drowned in the attempt to swim across not long ago and one who had the madness to trust himself upon a table as a raft was swept down to the whirlpool where his mangled body eddied round and round some days 
I am inclined to think that the noise of the falls is very much exaggerated, and this will appear the more probable when the depth of the great basin in which the water is received is taken into account. At no time during our stay there was the wind at all high or boisterous, but we never heard them three miles off, even at the very quiet time of sunset, although we often tried. Queenston, at which place the steamboats start for Toronto, or, I should rather say, at which place they call, for their wharf is at Lewiston, on the opposite shore, is situated in a delicious valley, through which the Niagara River, in colour of very deep green, pursues its course. It is approached by a road that takes its winding way among the heights by which the town is sheltered, and seen from this point is extremely beautiful and picturesque. On the most conspicuous of these heights stood a monument erected by the provincial legislature in memory of General Brock, who was slain in a battle with the American forces after having won the victory. Some vagabond, supposed to be a fellow of the name of Lett, who is now, or who lately was in prison as a felon, blew up this monument two years ago, and it is now a melancholy ruin, with a long fragment of iron railing hanging dejectedly from its top, and waving to and fro like a wild ivy branch or broken vine-stem. It is of much higher importance than it may seem that this statue should be repaired at the public cost, as it ought to have been long ago. Firstly, because it is beneath the dignity of England to allow a memorial raised in honour of one of her defenders to remain in this condition on the very spot where he died. Secondly, because the sight of it in its present state, and the recollection of the unpunished outrage which brought it to this pass, is not very likely to soothe down border feelings among English subjects here, or compose their border quarrels and dislikes. I was standing on the wharf at this place, watching the passengers embarking in a steamboat which preceded that whose coming we awaited, and participating in the anxiety with which a sergeant's wife was collecting her few goods together, keeping one distracted eye hard upon the porters, who were hurrying them on board, and the other on a hoopless washing-tub for which, as being the most utterly worthless of all her movables, she seemed to entertain particular affection when three or four soldiers with a recruit came up and went on board. The recruit was a likely young fellow enough, strongly built and well made, but by no means sober. Indeed, he had all the air of a man who had been more or less drunk for some days. He carried a small bundle over his shoulder, slung at the end of a walking-stick, and had a short pipe in his mouth. He was as dusty and dirty as recruits usually are, and his shoes betokened that he had travelled on foot some distance, but he was in a very jocose state, and shook hands with this soldier and clapped that one on the back and talked and laughed continually like a roaring idle dog as he was. The soldiers rather laughed at this blade than with him, seeming to say, as they stood straightening their canes in their hands and looking coolly at him over their glazed stalks, "'Go on, my boy, while you may. You'll know better by and by.' When suddenly the novice, who had been backing towards the gangway in his noisy merriment, fell overboard before their eyes and splashed heavily down into the river between the vessel and the dock. I never saw such a good thing as this change that came over these soldiers in an instant. Almost before the man was down, their professional manner, their stiffness and constraint were gone, and they were filled with the most violent energy.' In less time than is required to tell it, they had him out again, feet first, with the tails of his coat flapping over his eyes, everything about him hanging the wrong way, and the water streaming off at every thread in his threadbare dress. 
but the moment they set him upright and found that he was none the worse, they were soldiers again, looking over their glazed stocks more composedly than ever. The half-sobered recruit glanced round for a moment, as if his first impulse was to express some gratitude for his preservation, but seeing them with this air of total unconcern, and having his wet pipe presented to him with an oath by the soldier who had been by far the most anxious of the party, he stuck it in his mouth, thrust his hands into his moist pockets, and without even shaking the water off his clothes, walked on board whistling, not to say as if nothing happened, but as if he had meant to do it, and it had been a perfect success. Our steamboat came up directly this had left the wharf, and soon bore us to the mouth of the Niagara, where the stars and stripes of America flutter on one side, and the Union Jack of England on the other, and so narrow is the space between them that the sentinels in either fort can often hear the watchword of the other country given. Thence we emerged on Lake Ontario, an inland sea, and by half-past six o'clock were at Toronto. The country round this town, being very flat, is bare of scenic interest, but the town itself is full of life and motion, bustle, business, and improvement. The streets are well paved and lighted with gas, the houses are large and good, the shops excellent, many of them have a display of goods in their windows, such as may be seen in thriving country towns in England, and there are some which would do no discredit to the metropolis itself. There is a good stone prison here, and there are, besides a handsome church, a courthouse, public offices, many commodious private residences, and a government observatory for noting and recording the magnetic variations. In the College of Upper Canada, which is one of the public establishments of the city, a sound education in every department of polite learning can be had, at a very moderate expense, the annual charge for the instruction of each pupil not exceeding nine pounds sterling. It has pretty good endowments on the way of land, and is a valuable and useful institution. The first stone of a new college had been laid but a few days before by the Governor-General. It will be a handsome, spacious edifice, approached by a long avenue which is already planted and made available as a public walk. The town is well adapted for wholesome exercise at all seasons, for the footways in the thoroughfares which lie beyond the principal street are planked-like floors and kept in very good and clean repair. It is a matter of deep regret that political differences should have run high in this place, and led to most discreditable and disgraceful results. It is not long since guns were discharged from a window in this town at the successful candidates in an election, and the coachman of one of them was actually shot in the body, though not dangerously wounded. But one man was killed on the same occasion, and from the very window whence he received his death, the very flag which shielded his murderer, not only in the commission of the crime but from its consequences, was displayed again on the occasion of the public ceremony performed by the Governor-General to which I have just adverted. Of all the colours in the rainbow, there is but one which could be so employed. I need not say that flag was orange. The time of leaving Toronto for Kingston is noon. By eight o'clock next morning, the traveller is at the end of his journey, which is performed by a steamboat upon Lake Ontario, calling at Port Hope and Coburg, the latter a cheerful, thriving little town. Vast quantities of flour form the chief item in the freight of these vessels. We had no fewer than one thousand and eighty barrels on board between Coburg and Kingston. The latter place, which is now the seat of government in Canada, is a very poor town, rendered still poorer in the appearance of its market-place by the ravages of a recent fire. 
Indeed, it may be said of Kingston that one half of it appears to be burnt down and the other half not to be built up. The government house is neither elegant nor commodious, yet it is almost the only house of any importance in the neighbourhood. There is an admirable jail here, well and wisely governed, and excellently regulated in every respect. The men were employed as shoemakers, rope-makers, blacksmiths, tailors, carpenters, and stone-cutters, and in building a new prison which was pretty far advanced towards completion. The female prisoners were occupied in needlework. Among them was a beautiful girl of twenty who had been there nearly three years. She acted as bearer of secret dispatches for the self-styled patriots on Navy Island during the Canadian insurrection, sometimes dressing as a girl, and carrying them in her stays, sometimes attiring herself as a boy, and secreting them in the lining of her hat. In the latter character she always rode as a boy would, which was nothing to her, for she could govern any horse that any man could ride, and could drive four in hand with the best whip in those parts. Setting forth on one of her patriotic missions, she appropriated to herself the first horse she could lay her hands on, and this offence had brought her where I saw her. She had quite a lovely face, though, as the reader may suppose from this sketch of her history, there was a lurking devil in her bright eyes which looked out pretty sharply from between her prison bars. There is a bomb-proof fort here of great strength, which occupies a bold position, and is capable, doubtless, of doing good service, though the town is much too close upon the frontier to be long held, I should imagine, for its present purpose in troubled times. There is also a small navy-yard where a couple of government steamboats were building, and getting on vigorously. We left Kingston for Montreal on the 10th of May, at half-past nine in the morning, and proceeded in a steamboat down the St. Lawrence River. The beauty of this noble stream at almost any point, but especially in the commencement of this journey, when it winds its way among the thousand islands, can hardly be imagined. The number and constant successions of these islands, all green and richly wooded, their fluctuating sizes, some so large that for half an hour together one among them will appear as the opposite bank of the river, and some so small that they are mere dimples on its broad bosom, their infinite variety of shapes, and the numberless combinations of beautiful forms which the trees growing on them present, all form a picture fraught with uncommon interest and pleasure. In the afternoon we shot down some rapids where the river boiled and bubbled strangely, and where the force and headlong violence of the current were tremendous. At seven o'clock we reached Dickinson's Landing, whence travellers proceed for two or three hours by stagecoach, the navigation of the river being rendered so dangerous and difficult in the interval by rapids that steamboats do not make the passage. The number and length of these portages, over which the roads are bad and the travelling slow, render the way between the towns of Montreal and Kingston somewhat tedious. Our course lay over a wide, unenclosed tract of country at a little distance from the riverside, whence the bright warning lights on the dangerous parts of the St. Lawrence shone vividly. The night was dark and raw, and the way dreary enough. It was nearly ten o'clock when we reached the wharf where the next steamboat lay, and went on board and to bed. She lay there all night, and started as soon as it was day. The morning was ushered in by a violent thunderstorm, and was very wet, but gradually improved and brightened up. Going on deck after breakfast I was amazed to see floating down with a stream a most gigantic raft with some thirty or forty wooden houses upon it, and at least as many flag-masks, so that it looked like a nautical street. I saw many of these rafts afterwards, but never one so large. 
All the timber, or lumber, as it is called in America, which is brought down the St. Lawrence, is floated down in this manner. When the raft reaches its place of destination, it is broken up, the materials are sold, and the boatmen return for more. At eight we landed again, and travelled by a stagecoach for four hours through a pleasant and well-cultivated country, perfectly French in every respect. In the appearance of the cottages, the air, language, and dress of the peasantry, the signboards on the shops and taverns, and the virgin's shrines and crosses by the wayside. Nearly every common labourer and boy, though he had no shoes to his feet, wore round his waist a sash of some bright colour, generally red, and the women, who were working in the fields and gardens and doing all kinds of husbandry, wore, one and all, great flat straw hats with most capacious brims. There were Catholic priests and sisters of charity in the village streets, and images of the Saviour at the corners of crossroads and in other public places. At noon we went on board another steamboat, and reached the village of Lachine, nine miles from Montreal, by three o'clock. There we left the river, and went on by land. Montreal is pleasantly situated on the margin of the St. Lawrence, and is backed by some bold heights about which there are charming rides and drives. The streets are generally narrow and irregular, as in most French towns of any age, but in the more modern parts of the city they are wide and airy. They display a great variety of very good shops, and both in the town and suburbs there are many excellent private dwellings. The granite quays are remarkable for their beauty, solidity, and extent. There is a very large Catholic cathedral here, recently erected with two tall spires, of which one is yet unfinished. In the open space in front of this edifice stands a solitary grim-looking square brick tower, which has a quaint and remarkable appearance, and which the wiseacres of the place have consequently determined to pull down immediately. The government house is very superior to that at Kingston, and the town is full of life and bustle. In one of the suburbs is a plank road, not footpath, five or six miles long, and a famous road it is too. All the rides in this vicinity were made doubly interesting by the bursting out of spring, which is here so rapid that it is but a day's leap from barren winter to the blooming youth of summer. The steamboats to Quebec perform the journey in the night, that is to say they leave Montreal at six in the evening and arrive in Quebec at six next morning. We made this excursion during our stay in Montreal, which exceeded a fortnight, and were charmed by its interest and beauty. The impression made upon the visitor by this Gibraltar of America, its giddy heights, its citadel suspended as it were in the air, its picturesque steep streets and frowning gateways, and the splendid views which burst upon the eye at every turn, is at once unique and lasting. It is a place not to be forgotten or mixed up in the mind with other places, or altered for a moment in the crowd of scenes a traveller can recall. Apart from the realities of this most picturesque city, there are associations clustered about it which would make a desert rich in interest. The dangerous precipice along whose rocky front Wolf and his brave companions climbed to glory, the plains of Abraham where he received his mortal wound, the fortress so chivalrously defended by Montcalm, and his soldier's grave dug for him while yet alive, by the bursting of a shell, are not the least among them, or among the gallant incidents of history. That is a noble monument, too, and worthy of two great nations, which perpetuates the memory of both brave generals, and on which their names are jointly written. The city is rich in public institutions and in Catholic churches and charities, but it is mainly in the prospect from the site of the old government house, 
and from the citadel that its surpassing beauty lies. The exquisite expanse of country, rich in field and forest, mountain height and water, which lies stretched out before the view, with miles of Canadian villages glancing in long white streaks, like veins along the landscape, the motley crowd of gables, roofs, and chimney-tops in the old hilly town immediately at hand, the beautiful St. Lawrence sparkling and flashing in the sunlight, and the tiny ships below the rock from which you gaze, whose distant rigging looks like spiders' webs against the light, while casks and barrels on their decks dwindle into toys, and busy mariners become so many puppets, all this framed by a sunken window in the fortress, and looked at from the shadowed room within, forms one of the brightest and most enchanting pictures that the eye can rest upon. In the spring of the year, vast numbers of emigrants who have newly arrived from England or from Ireland pass between Quebec and Montreal on their way to the backwoods and new settlements of Canada. If it be an entertaining lounge, as I very often found it, to take a morning stroll upon the quay at Montreal, and see them grouped in hundreds on the public wharfs about their chests and boxes, it is a matter of deep interest to be their fellow-passenger on one of these steamboats, and mingling with the concourse, see and hear them unobserved. The vessel in which we returned from Quebec to Montreal was crowded with them, and at night they spread their beds between decks, those who had beds, at least, and slept so close and thick about our cabin door that the passage to and fro was quite blocked up. They were nearly all English, from Gloucestershire the greater part, and had had a long winter passage out, but it was wonderful to see how clean the children had been kept, and how untiring in their love and self-denial all the poor parents were. Can't as we may, and as we shall to the end of things, it is very much harder for the poor to be virtuous than it is for the rich, and the good that is in them shines the brighter for it. In many a noble mansion lives a man, the best of husbands and of fathers, whose private worth in both capacities is justly lauded to the skies. But bring him here, upon this crowded deck, strip from his fair young wife her silken dress and jewels, unbind her braided hair, stamp early wrinkles on her brow, pinch her pale cheek with care and much privation, array her faded form in coarsely patched attire, let there be nothing but his love to set her forth or deck her out, and you shall put it to the proof indeed. So change his station in the world, that he shall see in those young things who climb about his knee, not records of his wealth and name, but little wrestlers with him for his daily bread, so many poachers on his scanty meal, so many units to divide his every sum of comfort, and farther to reduce its small amount. In lieu of the endearments of childhood in its sweetest aspect, heap upon him all his pains and wants, its sicknesses and ills, its fretfulness, caprice, and querulous endurance. Let its prattle be not of engaging infant fancies, but of cold and thirst and hunger. And if his fatherly affection outlive all this, and he be patient, watchful, tender, careful of his children's lives, and mindful always of their joys and sorrows, then send him back to Parliament and pulpit and quarter sessions, and when he hears fine talk of the depravity of those who live from hand to mouth, and labour hard to do it, let him speak up as one who knows, and tell those holders forth, that they, by parallel with such a class, should be high angels in their daily lives, and lay but humble siege to heaven at last. Which of us shall say what he would be, if such realities, 
with small relief or change all through his days, were his. Looking round upon these people, far from home, houseless, indigent, wandering, weary with travel and hard living, and seeing how patiently they nursed and tended their young children, how they consulted ever their wants first, then half supplied their own, what gentle ministers of hope and faith the women were, how the men profited by their example, and how very, very seldom even a moment's petulance or harsh complaint broke out among them, I felt a stronger love and honour of my kind come glowing on my heart, and wished to God there had been many atheists in the better part of human nature there, to read this simple lesson in the book of life. We left Montreal for New York again on the 30th of May, crossing to La Prairie on the opposite shore of the St. Lawrence, in a steamboat. We then took the railroad to St. John's, which is on the brink of Lake Champlain. Our last greeting in Canada was from the English officers in the pleasant barracks at that place, a class of gentlemen who had made every hour of our visit memorable by their hospitality and friendship, and with rule Britannia sounding in our ears, soon left it far behind. But Canada has held, and always will remain, a foremost place in my remembrance. Few Englishmen are prepared to find it what it is. Advancing quietly, old differences settling down, and being fast forgotten, public feeling and private enterprise alike, in a sound and wholesome state, nothing of flush or fever in its system, but health and vigour throbbing in its steady pulse, it is full of hope and promise. To me, who had been accustomed to think of it as something left behind in the strides of advancing society, as something neglected and forgotten, slumbering and wasting in its sleep, the demand for labour and the rates of wages, the busy quays of Montreal, the vessels taking in their cargoes and discharging them, the amount of shipping in the different ports, the commerce, roads, and public works, all made to last, the respectability and character of the public journals, and the amount of rational comfort and happiness which honest industry may earn, were very great surprises. The steamboats on the lakes and their conveniences, cleanliness and safety, in the gentlemanly character and bearing of their captains, and in the politeness and perfect comfort of their social regulations, are unsurpassed even by the famous Scotch vessels, deservedly so much esteemed at home. The inns are usually bad, because the custom of boarding at hotels is not so general here as in the States, and the British officers, who form a large portion of the society of every town, live chiefly at the regimental messes, but in every other respect the traveller in Canada will find as good provision for his comfort as in any place I know. There is one American boat, the vessel which carried us on Lake Champlain from St. John's to Whitehall, which I praise very highly, but no more than it deserves, when I say that it is superior even to that in which we went from Queenston to Toronto, or to that in which we travelled from the latter place to Kingston, or, I have no doubt, I may add to any other in the world. The steamboat, which is called the Burlington, is a perfectly exquisite achievement of neatness, elegance, and order. The decks are drawing-rooms, the cabins are boudoirs, choicely furnished and adorned with prints, pictures, and musical instruments. Every nook and corner in the vessel is a perfect curiosity of graceful comfort and beautiful contrivance. Captain Sherman, her commander, to whose ingenuity and excellent taste these results are solely attributable, has bravely and worthily distinguished himself on more than one trying occasion, not least among them, in having the moral courage to carry British troops, at a time, during the Canadian rebellion, 
when no other conveyance was open to them. He and his vessel are held in universal respect, both by his own countrymen and ours, and no man ever enjoyed the popular esteem who, in his sphere of action, won and wore it better than this gentleman. By means of this floating palace we were soon in the United States again, and called that evening at Burlington, a pretty town where we lay an hour or so. We reached Whitehall, where we were to disembark, at six next morning, and might have done so earlier, but that these steamboats lie for some hours in the night, in consequence of the lake becoming very narrow at that part of the journey, and difficult of navigation in the dark. Its width is so contracted at one point, indeed, that they are obliged to warp round by means of a rope. After breakfasting at Whitehall, we took the stage-coach for Albany, a large and busy town, where we arrived between five and six o'clock that afternoon, after a very hot day's journey, for we were now in the height of summer again. At seven we started for New York on board a great North River steamboat, which was so crowded with passengers that the upper deck was like the box-lobby of the theatre between the pieces, and the lower one like Tottingham Court Road on a Saturday night. But we slept soundly, notwithstanding, and soon after five o'clock next morning reached New York. Tarrying here, only that day and night, to recruit after our late fatigues, we started off once more upon our last journey in America. We had yet five days to spare before embarking for England, and I had a great desire to see the Shaker village, which is peopled by a religious sect from whom it takes its name. To this end, we went up the North River again, as far as the town of Hudson, and there hired an extra to carry us to Lebanon thirty miles distant, and, of course, another and a different Lebanon from that village where I slept on the night of the prairie trip. The country through which the road meandered was rich and beautiful, the weather very fine, and for many miles the Catskill Mountains, where Rip Van Winkle and the ghostly Dutchman played at ninepins one memorable gusty afternoon, towered in the blue distance like stately clouds. At one point, as we ascended a steep hill, athwart whose base a railroad, yet constructing, took its course, we came upon an Irish colony. With means at hand of building decent cabins, it was wonderful to see how clumsy, rough, and wretched its hovels were. The best were poor protection from the weather, the worst let in the wind and rain through wide breaches in the roof of sodden grass, and in the walls of mud. Some had neither door nor window, some had nearly fallen down, and were imperfectly propped up by stakes and poles. All were ruinous and filthy. Hideously ugly old women and very buxom young ones, pigs, dogs, men, children, babies, pots, kettles, dunghills, vile refuge, rank straw, and standing water, all wallowing together in an inseparable heap, composed the furniture of every dark and dirty hut. Between nine and ten o'clock at night we arrived at Lebanon, which is renowned for its warm baths and for a great hotel well adapted, I have no doubt, to the gregarious taste of those seekers after health and pleasure who repair here, but inexpressibly comfortless to me. We were shown into an immense apartment lighted by two dim candles called the drawing-room, from which there was a descent by a flight of steps to another vast desert called the dining-room, our bedchambers were almost certain long rows of little whitewashed cells, which opened from either side of a dreary passage, and were so like rooms in a prison that I half expected to be locked up when I went to bed, and listened involuntarily for the turning of the key on the outside. 
There need be baths somewhere in the neighbourhood, for the other washing arrangements were on as limited a scale as I ever saw, even in America. Indeed, these bedrooms were so very bare of even such common luxuries as chairs, that I should say they were not provided with enough of anything, but that I bethink myself of our having been most bountifully bitten all night. The house is very pleasantly situated, however, and we had a good breakfast. That done, we went to visit our place of destination, which was some two miles off, and the way to which was soon indicated by a finger-post whereon was painted to the Shaker village. As we rode along we passed a party of Shakers, who were at work upon the road, who wore the broadest of all broad-brimmed hats, and were in all visible respects such very wooden men that I felt about as much sympathy for them and as much interest in them as if they had been so many figureheads of ships. Presently we came to the beginning of the village, and alighting at the door of a house where the Shaker manufacturers are sold, and which is the headquarters of the elders, requested permission to see the Shaker worship. Pending the conveyance of this request to some person in authority, we walked into a grim room, where several grim hats were hanging on grim pegs, and the time was grimly told by a grim clock which uttered every tick with a kind of struggle, as if it broke the grim silence reluctantly and under protest. Ranged against the wall were six or eight stiff high-backed chairs, and they partook so strongly of the general grimness that one would much rather have sat on the floor than incurred the smallest obligation to any of them. Presently there stalked into this apartment a grim old shaker, with eyes as hard and dull and cold as the great round metal buttons on his coat and waistcoat, a sort of calm goblin. Being informed of our desire, he produced a newspaper wherein the body of elders, whereof he was a member, had advertised but a few days before that in consequence of certain unseemly interruptions which their worship had received from strangers, their chapel was closed to the public for the space of one year. As nothing was to be urged in opposition to this reasonable arrangement, we requested leave to make some trifling purchase of Shaker goods, which was grimly conceded. We accordingly repaired to a store in the same house, and on the opposite side of the passage, where the stock was presided over by something alive in a russet case, which the elder said was a woman, and which I suppose was a woman, though I should not have suspected it. On the opposite side of the road was their place of worship, a cool, clean edifice of wood, with large windows and green blinds, like a spacious summer-house. As there was no getting into this place, and nothing was to be done but walk up and down and look at it, and the other buildings in the village, which were chiefly of wood, painted a dark red like English barns, and composed of many stories like English factories, I have nothing to communicate to the reader beyond the scanty results I gleaned the while our purchases were making. These people are called shakers from their peculiar form of adoration, which consists of a dance performed by the men and women of all ages, who arrange themselves for that purpose in opposite parties, the men first divesting themselves of their hats and coats, which they gravely hang against the wall before they begin, and tying a ribbon round their shirt-sleeves as though they were going to be bled. They accompany themselves with a droning humming noise, and dance until they are quite exhausted, alternately advancing and retiring in a preposterous sort of trot. The effect is said to be unspeakably absurd, and if I may judge from a print of this ceremony which I have in my possession, and which I am informed by those who have visited the chapel as perfectly accurate, it must be infinitely grotesque. They are governed by a woman, and her rule is understood to be absolute, though she has the assistance of a council of elders. 
She lives, it is said, in strict seclusion, in certain rooms above the chapel, and is never shown to profane eyes. If she at all resembled the lady who presided over the store, it is a great charity to keep her as close as possible, and I cannot too strongly express my perfect concurrence in this benevolent proceeding. All the possessions and revenues of the settlement are thrown into a common stock, which is managed by the elders. As they have made converts among people who were well-to-do in the world, and are frugal and thrifty, it is understood that this fund prospers, the more especially as they have made large purchases of land. Nor is this at Lebanon the only Shaker settlement. There are, I think, at least three others. They are good farmers, and all their produce is eagerly purchased and highly esteemed. Shaker seeds, shaker herbs, and shaker distilled waters are commonly announced for sale in the shops of towns and cities. They are good breeders of cattle, and are kind and merciful to the brute creation. Consequently, shaker beasts seldom fail to find a ready market. They eat and drink together, after the Spartan model, at a great public table. There is no union of the sexes, and every shaker, male and female, is devoted to a life of celibacy. Rumour has been busy upon this theme, but here again I must refer to the lady of the store, and say that if many of the sister shakers resemble her, I treat all such slander as bearing on its face the strongest marks of wild improbability, but that they take as proselytes persons so young that they cannot know their own minds, and cannot possess much strength of resolution in this or any other respect, I can assert from my own observation of this extreme juvenility of certain youthful shakers whom I saw at work among the party on the road. They are said to be good drivers of bargains, but to be honest and just in their transactions, and even in horse-dealing to resist those thievish tendencies which would seem, for some undiscovered reason, to be almost inseparable from that branch of traffic. In all matters they hold their own course quietly, live in their gloomy, silent commonwealth, and show little desire to interfere with other people. This is well enough, but nevertheless I cannot, I confess, incline towards the Shakers, view them with much favour, or extend towards them any very lenient construction. I so abhor, and from my soul detest that bad spirit, no matter by what class or sect it may be entertained, which would strip life of its healthful graces, rob youth of its innocent pleasures, pluck from maturity and age their pleasant ornaments, and make existence but a narrow path towards the grave, that odious spirit which, if it could have had full scope and sway upon the earth, must have blasted and made barren the imaginations of the greatest men, and left them, in their power of raising up enduring images before their fellow-creatures yet unborn, no better than the beasts, that in these very broad-brimmed hats and very sombre coats, in stiff-necked, solemn-visaged piety, in short, no matter what its garb, whether it hath cropped hair, as in a shaker village, or long nails, as in a hoodoo temple, I recognize the worst among the enemies of heaven and earth, who turn the water at the marriage-feasts of this poor world, not unto wine, but gall. And if there must be people vowed to crush the harmless fancies and the love of innocent delights and gaieties, which are a part of human nature, as much a part of it as any other love or hope that is our common portion, let them, for me, stand openly revealed among the ribald and licentious. The very idiots know that they are not on the immortal road, and will despise them and avoid them readily. Leaving the Shaker village with a hearty dislike of the old Shakers, 
and a hearty pity for the young ones, tempered by the strong probability of their running away as they grow older and wiser, which they not uncommonly do, we returned to Lebanon, and so to Hudson, by the way we had come upon the previous day. There we took the steamboat down the North River towards New York, but stopped some four hours' journey short of it at West Point, where we remained the night, and all next day, and next night too. In this beautiful place, the fairest among the fair and lovely highlands of the North River, shut in by deep green heights and ruined forts, and looking down the distant town of Newburgh, upon a glittering path of sunlit water, with here and there a skiff, whose white sail often bends on some new tack as sudden flaws of wind come down upon her from the gullies and the hills, hemmed in besides all round with memories of Washington and events of the Revolutionary War, is the military school of America. It could not stand on more appropriate ground, and any ground more beautiful can hardly be. The course of education is severe, but well devised and manly. Through June, July, and August, the young man encamp upon the spacious plain whereon the college stands, and all the year their military exercises are performed there, daily. The term of study at this institution, which the State requires from all cadets, is four years. But whether it be from the rigid nature of the discipline, or the national impatience of restraint, or both causes combined, not more than half the number who begin their studies here ever remain to finish them. The number of cadets being about equal to that of the members of Congress, one is sent here from every congressional district, its member influencing the selection. Commissions in the service are distributed on the same principle. The dwellings of the various professors are beautifully situated, and there is a most excellent hotel for strangers, though it had the two drawbacks of being a total abstinence house, wines and spirits being forbidden to the students, and to serving the public meals at rather uncomfortable hours, to wit, breakfast at seven, dinner at one, and supper at sunset. The beauty and freshness of this calm retreat, in the very dawn and greenness of summer, it was then the beginning of June, were exquisite indeed. Leaving it upon the sixth, and returning to New York, to embark for England on the succeeding day, I was glad to think that among the last memorable beauties which had glided past us, and softened in the bright perspective, were those whose pictures, traced by no common hand, are fresh in most men's minds, not easily to grow old, or fade beneath the dust of time, the Catskill Mountains, Sleepy Hollow, and the Tappan Zee. End of chapter 15